This is Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. The idea of moving scared me. The rooms were big. The building in a fancy part of town. It was all too foreign. And my mother hadn't told me anything about what our life here would be like. There were too many unknowns. Where would I go to school? Was she getting a job? Was it a temporary move and we'd go back to Queens in a few months? That was an excerpt from the novel, The Perfume Burned His Eyes, written and narrated by Michael Imperioli. Although Michael Imperioli has had a 30-year career as an actor, working in both television and film, he's probably best known for his role as Christopher in The Sopranos. But Michael has also had a parallel career as a writer for the last 20-plus years, writing for various television shows, including The Sopranos, and films like Son of Sam. But The Perfume Burned His Eyes is Imperioli's first novel, and it is a very unlikely one. Michael Imperioli has written a coming-of-age story set in 1976. At its center is a 16-year-old boy named Matthew, whose father and grandfather die within an eight-month period of each other. The deaths naturally rock the world of only child Matthew and his mother. And there's also an unexpected and sizable inheritance that's both liberating and complicating. Matthew and his mom move from Jackson Heights, Queens, a fairly blue-collar neighborhood, to a posh apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Although it's only two or three miles away, it is a very different world for this kid. Not the least because he discovers one of his neighbors is the legendary musician Lou Reed. I'll let Michael Imperioli fill in the rest. Living in this apartment building is the musician Lou Reed, who in 1976 actually did live on the east side with his transgendered girlfriend, Rachel. And it was a particularly crazy period in his life because he was under the influence of a rather potent form of amphetamine called desoxin, which they used to give to heart attack patients. So Lou's in kind of a crazy period, but a very creative period. And the kid winds up becoming almost like a gopher of sorts to Lou. And Lou becomes this unorthodox father figure for the kid. And the kid doesn't really know who Lou is at the beginning of the story. And uh, so uh, the story basically is this kid starting to navigate the beginning of manhood and all the totems of adulthood, like driving a car for the first time and having sex for the first time, falling in love for the first time, you know, going to a bar for the first time, all through the perspective of this new life that he's entered. Right. And his experiences with all of those first times are quite unusual. I mean, we all think of our first times, but poor Matthew. I mean, his first time behind the wheel of a car, I was at the edge of my seat the entire time. He is such a sweet kid. Yeah, he is a sweet kid, and he's thrust into a crucible, if you will, you know, New York City, particularly Manhattan, 1976. There are a lot of extremes to be found. It's rare that you read anything that has, at its core, a really sweet boy. He's very smart. He's not gushy. He's certainly... Well, walks on the wild side, no pun intended, or every pun intended. But at his core, there's just such sweetness. 
you know, there's an innocence that I wanted to work with, and there's an innocence and a openness and a wide-eyedness that he's looking at the world through. He's not someone who's acting on the world. He's more of reacting to what he's seeing and what's happening to him. And that touched me about this character. Tell me what led you to write this book. I've had a parallel career as a writer for the last 20-something years, beginning with Summer Sam, which I co-wrote with somebody for Spike Lee, and then wrote uh, several episodes of The Sopranos and then wrote an independent movie that I directed. Got hired to adapt a couple of books that never wound up getting made into movies and wrote a bunch of other stuff that on my own that never got made. But I've been a lover of fiction and literature for many years and especially in the last 10, really started reading and writing prose with the intent of trying to write a book. Many failed attempts and lots of garbage that I threw away. Then I had some television projects that I was developing that I was excited about that I got really frustrated about with trying to move them through the structure of networks and studios and producers and collaborators and things. And I... I, finally said, well, why don't you just do something that's an end, you know, that's an end unto itself, because a treatment or a screenplay or a teleplay is really a blueprint or a schematic for the finished product of the film or the show. The writing, the screenplay in its form is not really a work of art by any means. You know, once the movie's done, the screenplay has no function at all. So writing a book to me represent a certain amount of freedom that there wasn't anything standing in the way of me completing the book. The only thing would be was to find a publisher to get it into the world, but the actual completion of the work was up to me, and that was very appealing. How did Lou Reed end up in this coming-of-age story? I was only 10 in 1976, but that period of time in New York Uh, And the movies and the music that came out of it has always really attracted me. And then about three months after I got into it, Lou Reed passed away. And in the last decade of his life, he and I had become friends. He was always a big hero of mine before that, you know, as a a young man. And then I was lucky enough to to get to know him in around 2000. So his death hit me on a number of levels. And then I had the idea of, putting him into the story and these two characters kind of colliding and seeing what happens. And that's really the genesis of the book. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why is Lou Reed a hero of yours? First of all, I just loved his music. I thought it really was just great rock and roll. I loved how he documented life in New York. I admired the way he, from the mid-60s up until the time of his death in 2013, was always searching and trying new things and pushing the boundaries. And the new music he was making was potent and relevant and exciting. He never became a nostalgia act. He never rested on his laurels. Do you think you would have had him as a character in the book had he been alive? No. 
Definitely not. I think that would have been an, an invasion of privacy in some ways. You know, dead people don't, they don't have rights to invasion of privacy, nor do they have rights to sue for defamation of character. Although I feel I do not defame his character. I mean, I, if anything, it's, a, it's an homage to him and, and a tribute to him. When did you and Lou Reed first meet? I lived in the Greenwich Village. I moved there first in 1988. And he lived in Greenwich Village around that time. And I would see him wandering around, you know, walking around the streets, which was very cool for someone in their early 20s, you know, to see their heroes walking around. But I actually first met him, I think it was around 1992, at a Knicks game. And I had been cast in a movie called I Shot Andy Warhol. And I got cast as a character, Undine, who was a friend of Lou's, who was one of the Warhol superstars and was in the movie Chelsea Girls. But I knew Lou was really upset that they were making a movie about Valerie Solanas, who shot Andy, who was Lou's dear friend and almost killed Andy. But nevertheless, I went up to him at the Knicks game on the escalator and said, hi, I'm an actor. I don't think he knew who I was. I had done a few things, but I said, I'm an actor, and I know you're not happy about this movie, but uh, I'm, I'm cast in this I Shot Andy Warhol. And he was like, I think it's despicable that they're making a movie about that psycho. It's disgusting. I said, I know, I know, but um, I'm excited because I got cast to play character on Dean. And he looked at me and just went, good luck. And he turned away and was heading up the escalator. And I was just like, oh, God. And then he turned around. He looked over his shoulder and he saw me and he walked back to me and he said, listen, do your work, do a good job. And just remember one thing, he was very, very funny. And then he turned away. So I saw kind of both sides of Lou, the tough exterior, the acerbic, the, you know, the sarcastic and the kind of vicious Lou, but also the compassion underneath all that. And probably that interaction eventually led to this book in a lot of ways. I was going to say, it sounds like the Lou we see in this book. Yeah, definitely. And then after The Sopranos went on the air and was a hit, uh, he was playing a concert at the Knitting Factory. This is around 2000. And I asked my manager to get me tickets, and she got me tickets to the publicist. And when the show was over, the publicist said, Lou wants to meet you and took me and my wife backstage, and I didn't even know he knew I was there or knew who I was, and it turned out he was a fan, and from then on, we were friends. And uh, his wife, his widow now, Laurie Anderson, who I spoke to after she read the book, said that apparently Lou used to do a wicked impression of me, which or my character, Christopher on The Sopranos, which I never had the privilege to see, but I wish I did now in hindsight. You actually got into the booth and recorded the audiobook of The Perfume Burned His Eyes. I did, yeah. Tell me what that experience was like. Well, I did one audiobook before, which was the, the last Mario Puzo, which wasn't a great book. It wasn't one of Puzo. It was maybe pieced together by some other people, and it wasn't, I think, emblematic of the best of Mario Puzo. But I did that audiobook and I really didn't like it, the experience. I found it really hard because you have to get everything so perfect in the diction and the pronunciation. I found it a very constrained type of work. I, I didn't really enjoy it. And not because of the material, just because of 
the nature of doing an audiobook. But with my book, I was very excited to do it because I read my writing aloud as I go. I find it's a very good way to, to, to hear if a sentence or a paragraph works or not by reading it aloud. Is there a flow? Because when you read, you hear it in your mind. So if you read it out loud, you can really get a sense of if there's that flow. So I had already had read a lot of it. And because it's something I wrote, I, I felt a kinship to it. So I had a blast doing the audiobook. And I've been doing some, reading some excerpts of the book in event, live events and literary festivals and stuff. And, and doing the Lou character and the kid a little bit has been really, really, really fun. That's what I was going to ask you. I thought you did a fabulous job on the audiobook. I read it as well as listened to, to the book. And you had the voice of that kid down. What was it like taking on the voice of a 17-year-old boy? I spent so much time in the head of that character that it was very available to me. And the same for the other characters. You know, after a couple of years of being in that headspace, it was not that difficult. And with Lou, you clearly didn't mimic his voice, but boy, did it have traces of it. Yeah, I mean, with an audiobook, I think... To really try to mimic something can be a little bit distracting, at least for me as an actor. So I try to have more of the flavor, maybe a little bit of the rhythm, a little bit of inflection. You know, like if you're reading a woman's voice, am I going to try to mimic the sound of a woman? I mean, that's going to be very weird and distracting. So you just try to get some of the flavor. Lou's register was, you know, more in that kind of tone. Like, uh, I think it's despicable. He had a lower kind of register than I did. But I, I didn't try to go there, but just try to have more of that energy and flavor, which was really, really fun. Let's hear another excerpt from the book, The Perfume Burned His Eyes. Matthew has started hanging out with Lou Reed every once in a while and is learning that the musician lives by his own rules, as in this chapter, where Reed takes the boy with him to one of New York's finest dive bars. Lou sat on the bench facing the entrance. I sat opposite. He took out a pack of Marlboros and lit one up. You got any change? I want to play some music. He started combing through his thousand pockets. I have a quarter. I handed it to him. Get me a gin and tonic and get yourself something too. He stood up and took a deep drag. I waited for him to give me the currency to pay for his drink, but that custom didn't seem to apply to his world. I don't have any more money on me. I said. I felt guilty that I couldn't buy the man a drink, which made no sense, of course, since he asked me to accompany him as a favor, not to mention I was strictly prohibited by law from purchasing alcoholic beverages. I guess it was just the way he said it, like we were pals and had gone drinking together many times before. I felt very mature when I walked into the bar with him, and now I was just a kid again, a measly, shrimpy kid who couldn't afford to buy his buddy a cocktail. Lou stared at me like he had forgotten who I was and why I was there. Oh, he said it like he regretted bringing me along. Then he took off his boot and searched inside. Finding nothing, he took off the other boot and extracted a crumpled bill. Here you go, and uh, get some more quarters. Your breakout role, I would say, was probably Goodfellas, where you played Spider. Yeah, that, that kind of put me on the map. Directed by Martin Scorsese, I think Goodfellas could quite possibly be the greatest movie ever made. I, I cannot say enough about it. And here you are, you're young and you're acting with 
these heavyweights and directed by Martin Scorsese. What was that experience like for you? Being a young Italian-American actor from New York who grew up with Scorsese and De Niro as big heroes, it's kind of akin to going from college baseball to playing in the World Series for the Yankees. It's like kind of being plucked out of that, literally. The saving grace for me was that the Marty, which makes him such a great director, is that he has a lot of faith in his actors and gives them a lot of freedom. And that's not just to the seasoned veterans and stars that he has worked with before. It's if he casts you, that's your role. And that's your role for you to do what you want with it. I knew going into the audition that he liked improvisation. You know, I knew that from just studying his work. So I was prepared to improvise a lot. And I did improvise a lot. And he liked that. And that's what we did on the set. That those, those scenes were different every single time we shot them. And it was just like he was filming what we were doing. And he had a lot of faith in uh, a young, untested actor. And I'll, I'll always be grateful for that. And gave me a lot of respect, which, you know, the very first movie I did uh, was with a big director. And I didn't get the same <laughs> attention and respect. And, and it caused me to really close up and not be very good. So I'm always grateful to, to Marty for that. Was there a takeaway for you from that film? You know, the takeaway was like that a, that a good director creates an atmosphere where his actors feel like they can do no wrong. You know, it's very vulnerable to be an actor, especially if you're on your way up and you're not really proven and it's intimidating. Even as now, I've been doing this 30 years professionally, you get to a new set and there's new director and there's new people and you've you got to prove yourself all over again and you're, you're vulnerable. And you want to be vulnerable because you want to be honest and you want to open up. And when you get any tension, you know, any kind of critical vibe or a director who's in a bad mood or who yells or or an AD, assistant director who's yelling at people, you know, if, or or someone who's short with you, that closes you up. So then you don't want to be vulnerable and you don't want to take any chances and you want to, maybe you'll deliver what's expected and what's on the page and you'll be professional and stuff, but you won't really go to those vulnerable places where you'll surprise yourself. That you need to be nurtured and you need somebody who's opening that space for you. And that's what a good director does. And I learned that that day, those two days. Well, The Sopranos made you and everybody in the cast, household names, and the series really was a cultural touchstone. You, you know how tremendous the impact it still has on television. What was that set like? Well, uh, most of those actors I had worked with before. Two of those actors I knew from my late teens in acting school. The, you know, the film, theater, TV community in New York is a lot smaller than it is in Hollywood. And then the Italian-American guild within that is even smaller. So a bunch of us had done movies, plays, TV stuff before. So I didn't know Jim Ganofini. I had never seen his work, to be honest. I had heard about him, but got to know him very quickly. And for us, you know, it's kind of like you're in a band and all of a sudden you have this hit. And so there's a real bonding thing that happens when you are proud of something and it becomes successful. Add that to the fact that a lot of us had known each other, 
we were very much like a family. I mean, doing that, I, I akin working on The Sopranos to like walking down the corner and hanging out with your friends every day. It really was like that a lot. And it's very much not usually the case in television. You've also done a lot of work with Spike Lee. Six projects, yeah. Six projects. What is it about his work that keeps you coming back? Well, I, you know, I really admire him because he's always done what he wants to do. Even his more commercial stuff, like, say, Inside Man, which is a heist movie, he did because he wanted to do it, and he did it in his way with the cast that he wanted to. He's never, like, gone off to do the big, giant Hollywood thing so he, so he can have the props to do his own little thing after that. He's just always moved from big budget to low budget, back to big budget, you know, experimenting on digital stuff before a lot of people were doing it, like with Bamboozled. He's willing to really take chances. There's a whole kind of group of filmmakers that came out of his movies, like he hired from within, like the, you know, someone who would start as like an assistant cameraman eventually became a director of photography under him. Someone who started as a production assistant eventually became a producer or a director. He's really been a huge force in filmmaking in New York. And he's been very loyal to a lot of people, very much so, including me. Yeah, he has, he mentors. He really takes interest in, in emerging talent and, and tries to do what he can to give them opportunities. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I want to return to audiobook narration for a moment. What is it like, Michael, when you just have your voice at your disposal as opposed to your entire body to convey a feeling or a thought? It's not easy. I think that's why the first experience I had doing an audiobook was so hard. I've also done some voiceovers, you know, commercially and stuff, and that's very hard, too, because it has to be very exact and perfect. It's not easy just relying on the voice. You have to be very, very specific and very clear. Acting's a lot different, especially movie acting, where very often you're just using your eyes, and that has no place in an audiobook. Yeah, exactly. And there's also such an intimacy, I think, that happens between the the narrator and the microphone and certainly the listener and the headphones. Right. Because most of us now are listening with headphones. We have earbuds. It's literally in our ear. And that's quite different from filling a room. Yeah. You have to you, you have to be able to trust the subtleties and, and you know, like when you're doing a play, you have to project in a theater, which is very unnatural. You know, when you're doing a movie, you can whisper and be more naturalistic. When you're on stage, it's got to reach the last row. If they can't hear you, that you ain't doing your job. You're cooked. <laughs> you're cooked, yeah. They're paying money to hear you. So it's a very different way to connect to the voice. But but with an audiobook, you you can get those more subtleties, and it's a little bit easier, I think. The title of the book, The Perfume Burned His Eyes. That's from Lou Reed, Romeo Had Juliet, off one of his greatest albums, New York. Yeah, there's the song Romeo Had Juliet. Is a, it's a star-crossed lovers in New York City, and it's a great song. But there's a stanza that always haunted me for many years. It's the perfume burned his eyes, holding tightly to her thighs, and something flickered for a minute, and then it vanished and was gone. That always just stuck with me, and I loved it so much. And I was always like, 
what do we do with that? How do I, how do I use that somehow? I looked in a note, a no, one of my notebooks, and I that stanza was right in the first page of it. I think it was for another project, another writing project, and I was like, oh, the perfume burned his eyes. And it just worked. And once, once I thought of that, I was like, oh, that's thought that that would work. And I, and I never turned back. I was like, that has to be the title. When you wrote the novel, was it the same method you used when you wrote screenplays? I mean, the same habit? Did you work the same? Yes and no. I only worked on the book when I knew I was going to be home and had uninterrupted time. I have a little tiny office in downtown Santa Barbara. There's no internet. There's no phone in there. There's actually not much of anything in the office. And I know I will never be interrupted in that office. So it's something about when I'm there and I clo- I, I'm very, very productive in that space. And I, I would only write when I knew I was going to have a big chunk of time, you know, weeks or months where I could really dedicate daily attention to the book. Uh, I liked working in the morning till a little bit after lunchtime. And then that's about it, four or five hours but that consistency is how it happens. And knowing that that time I'm going to be devoted to, even sometimes if not much happens, maybe only write a couple of sentences, but you, you start getting trained to knowing that that space and that time is dedicated to that work and things start to happen. Like I said, I only had a couple of ideas and things start to blossom as you go. With a screenplay, teleplay, especially like a Sopranos thing, well, th- those are outlined, you know before you even begin a draft. The novel was not outlined. Most most novelists that I've spoke to don't outline their stuff. They have a couple of little seeds and they explore where those things take them. So discipline-wise, it's similar, but uh, technique-wise, it's a little different. I didn't know where this story was going. I had a couple of scenes or, you know, seeds, like I call them. Uh, whereas with screenplays and stuff, it seems like there's a bit more preparation in terms of plotting. Because they're two different things. A screenplay, the, the sentences you're writing are to inform the filmmakers. You know, the sentences you write for a, for a novel, that's it. The sentence is the art. The sentence is the product. If the sentence doesn't work, you failed. Where if a sentence doesn't work in a screenplay, well, that doesn't really matter because it's just a description of what's eventually going to be projected onto a screen. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. So tell me, what's next? The worst question ever, but I'm curious. The book is has been translated into Italian, so I'm going to go read at a couple of festivals there. And then it's going to come out in French in September. So that's what's happening now. I mean, I have I have a bunch of stuff that's coming out. A movie that I co-produced and starred in came out in Portugal, and it's called Cabaret Maxime. I'm really, really, really proud of it. I'm so excited. So we're working on getting that to the rest of the world now, here and other countries. Well, Michael, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I really enjoyed the book, both reading it and listening to it. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. That's actor and writer Michael Imperioli. His book, narrated by Michael, is called The Perfume Burned His Eyes. You can find reviews for The Perfume Burned His Eyes and hundreds of other audiobooks at audiophilemagazine.com. 
For Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine, I'm Joe Reed. Thanks for listening.